Ronasso. This afternoon we return to settling the mind in its natural state. And I'd like to do very briefly, very quick review, also quiz. That is, what's the very first step that indicates you've made an entry across the threshold into the practice of settling the mind, or another phrase, taking the mind as the path. You look so confident, meek. Tell me. What's the first indication? What's the first step? Out of five steps, what's the first one? Where? In the space of the mind. And there's, or in the awareness. In your awareness. of That's 100%. Yeah, excellent. Good. Very good. Exactly it. That indicates that you have you engaged with the practice. You found your object of mindfulness. You're doing it. Now, certainly it's very challenging, but that's a first step. And then someone else, when you're now really getting into the flow of it, the first out of four types of mindfulness is what? I just said it yesterday, so I'm sure many people remember it. Retrospective? No. No, there's a, there's a name for it. There's a name for the type of mindfulness, and there's also a meaning. If you didn't get it yesterday, today's a really good day to get it. OK, so uh, that's fine. Either, uh, whoever it is, that's fine. All I'm looking for is the right answer. Yeah? Um, sing, Single-pointed. Saying it? Single-pointedness, single unification of your awareness. Single-pointed mindfulness. Yeah. We may as well get the terms right. They're easy. But now, what does it mean? That's very good. That's exactly right. Single-pointed mindfulness is the first of four mindfulnesses. And what does it mean? What's the referent of the term? Well, it means that your awareness you can detect when there's motion and stillness, and you're not losing that. You're staying single-pointedly focused. Not quite. Not quite. That sounds too similar to meek. Because that was the first step. The first step before single-pointed mindfulness. See, why, what, one reason I'm doing this is absolutely not to embarrass anybody, and I hope nobody's embarrassed. But especially when people get either the wrong, not, not quite the right answer or wrong answer, everybody remembers it so much better. Yeah? That's really it. So the, the name of it, single-pointed mindfulness, and now what's the meaning? Spot on, not blending it or, or, or blurring it with the first one, which is, as Meek so correctly said, distinguishing between stillness and movement, both in the space of the mind and in your own awareness. We want to unpack that because we did it yesterday. Now, single-pointed mindfulness, what are its characteristics? Is it detecting when you're, there's stillness and <clears throat> motion simultaneously? Yeah, what does that mean? That your awareness... Uh, like, like an ice cream cone. Your awareness is still while there's motion in the mind. Simultaneously. That's simultaneously. exactly right. Exactly right. So the single-pointed mindfulness. Now, I'll just go right back, because I was just reviewing the text to make sure I wouldn't, I wouldn't blur up myself. Um, this is from the Sharpvadra Tantra. That first of four phases of mindfulness is the mindfulness in which you're able to simultaneously experience. So here's the real articulation of it. And you get it sharp and, and clear. That's going to set you up. So when you're in your practice and you're wondering, am I on the right track or not, you'll give yourself a short, clear, precise, and accurate statement, and that will get you on the track. Rather than, I kind of think it's maybe this way, but maybe not, I'm, I'm like, then the whole practice becomes blurry. 
The mindfulness is such that you're able to simultaneously experience this is the stillness of your own awareness while attending to the movements of the mind. So you said it, and I just sharpened up a little bit. Right? So that's, I'm going to say it again. That first, now you're really getting into the flow of it. And I would suggest right now that in that very first one, single-pointed mindfulness, that is, no, actually, the, the very, very first one, before the, before the um, single-pointed mindfulness, uh, just the ability to distinguish between stillness and motion, get that one, and you've achieved stage one in this practice, stage one out of nine. Get to this one, where you're getting into the flow of experiencing simultaneously the stillness of your awareness holding its own ground, remaining in its own place, without going out on excursions, out to the reference of the thoughts, images, and so forth, simultaneously experiencing and knowing that your awareness is still, and simultaneously aware of the movements, the comings and goings of thoughts, images, and so forth. Achieve that one. And now we can say, OK, you've got a bit of continuity here. So let's say stage two. Stage two. Okay? So I hope that's totally clear. This is a simpler format, a simpler set of benchmarks than the nine, which are quite elaborate, but they're quite sufficient. Okay, Meek, question. Uh, the microphone right there. Other end, I think, is better. Uh, why only stage two? Because if you, if the object of mindfulness, I didn't say only stage two. I say achieve this, and you got stage two. Yeah, but yeah, why? There's more to come. Why, why stage two? Why, for example, not stage four? Because stage four is when you four don't lose at all. Stage four is coming. Yeah, it didn't say that you don't lose at all. Do you experience simultaneously? And you do experience that already at stage two. I'm looking for the lowest common denominator. Okay, that sets us up now to proceed on because actually. You know, our time is passing here. And so there are three more modes of mindfulness. The final one being the, full, the mindfulness of having achieved shamatha. So we're going to be mo moving pretty quickly. There are not a whole lot of stones to, to step across this river. Okay? We have five stones. The first one is the very entrance into the river. And now we have the first stone out of four stones of mindfulness. And that is single-pointed mindfulness. And now here's the second one. Second of four modes of mindfulness. We call it manifest mindfulness. Manifest. It's evident. You experience it. You know it. It's just the name. It doesn't give the meaning. Manifest mindfulness. Okay? And manifest mindfulness now has qualitatively a different feel to it. And that is when you're still working in that initial phases, you're kind of getting your momentum up. You're getting the hang of it. But you're being beaten up all over the place. Stage two. You're spending most of your time off the object. Most of the time, even with your best effort, most dedicated, focused, highly motivated, and all of that, stage two, you remember, you spend most of your time off the object. And that's normal. That's the way things are. So why do we say that? So you don't get discouraged when exactly what should be happening is, ha is happening, and you had expectations that it would be otherwise, and then start saying, although we don't say it anymore, that was rubbish, that was rubbish. No, that was stage two. I mean, call it rubbish compared to stage four, but call it pretty good compared to stage one. Right? And so, but it is effortful there. And it's really something like, it's really as if, or maybe it's not even an as if, maybe it is, that moving from that stage one to two and stage two to three, where finally with stage three, you're actually more on the object, 
most of the time you're holding your own ground, but you still fall off the wagon. You still have it set on it and still pulled away, abducted. But most of the time, you're on it. You know, this really reminds me a lot of, I've never been an alcoholic in this lifetime, but it sounds like an alcoholic, you know? So you decide on, you decide on Tuesday, okay, you know, yesterday I was on a, yesterday in the last three days I was on a drunken binge and I really hurt people and I had an accident and I lost my, I lost my driver's license. Enough is enough. Now I just, I have, otherwise I'm going to die, I'll ruin the lives of the people around me. One can imagine coming to a real crisis and saying, okay, today's Tuesday. Today I stop totally, okay? Well, how's it going to be Wednesday when you don't feel that good? I imagine it's quite a struggle not to go back to your source of refuge and comfort. It could be quite a struggle. And I know some people who go into the, you know, into the program, they, they go into it, and then they fall off the wagon. They, they go back, but then, then they, they get to act together, and they get back on the program again, and maybe they fall back. But then they get, and then after the time, if they have that determination, then they stay on the program. And I know people who would say, I'm a, I'm a non-practicing alcoholic, and I've not had drink for 15 years, for 20 years. I'm a non-practicing alcoholic. Fantastic, fantastic. But I can imagine the beginning stage would be very difficult, just out of sheer habit and, of course, the biological addiction to it. So what I'm getting at, of course, we're addicted to OCDD. What else do you call it? Wouldn't it be nice not to have it at all? So why don't you just stop? Why don't you just make a decision? From now on, I'll just have no more rumination. I've, I've seen the faults of it, and I just won't do it anymore. Shall we have a, an agreement? I won't do it if you don't do it. You get lots of luck with that one. Right? It's an addiction. And so on those stages two, stages one, two, three, it takes a lot of effort. It's subtle effort, but it does take effort not to fall right back into the old grind, right back into losing your mind again and again and again. Manifest mindfulness, the second of the four. When this occurs, you have created a new habit. And having created a new habit, it's not nearly as effortful. In fact, now it's with very little effort. It's not strenuous as it was before. And so without having to exert this, the, the effort, without it being strenuous as it was in stage one, two, three, along that area, get up around stage four. And now, as, as Meek pointed out, get up to stage four. And now you're no longer prone to, after you've achieved stage four, you recall anybody. What's the defining characteristic? What's the big deal when you achieve stage four? Meek, you probably know. Can you share it with us? What's the big deal? You don't, have, you don't lose the object anymore. You don't have coarse excitation. Exactly right. Boy, you just 100% after 100%. Exactly right. You no longer have coarse excitation, which means you're no longer completely losing your mind. Right? Just carried away, off to the reference of this thought, that thought, and so forth. In other words, you have a real continuity there. And you might recall in the descriptions that when you achieve that stage four, there's kind of a satisfaction. Like, maybe the worst of the storm is over. You don't know the typhoon that's coming at stage six, but for the time being, it feels pretty good. right? And so there you are. You've created a new habit, a really wholesome habit of maintaining without too much effort, not nearly as much effort as before, a non-strenuous flow of coherence, 
of mindfulness. And that's why it's called manifest mindfulness. That ability, that faculty is really now coming into its own. And so we can say this one, manifest mindfulness, which is, now what is this defining characteristic? You're now able to sustain that simultaneous awareness of stillness and motion, sustain it over a considerable period of time without it being so strenuous. It's much more relaxed, much more in the flow. There's a nice term for modern psychology. You're in, the you're in the flow now. Bicyclists, marathon runners, many people experience musicians, and so forth. It's a very good term, very popular in psychology for good reason, and they've defined it very nicely. Where you get into the flow of it, and there's a, lot, there's a lot of composure, of coherence, of cohesion, and it's not so effortful. You're just right there in the flow. It's a very lovely term. That's it. When you achieve mindfulness, where you're sustaining simultaneously the awareness of the stillness of your own awareness with the movement of thoughts and images, other mental activities, and you're in the flow, that's, mindful. that's manifest mindfulness. Second out of four types of mindfulness. So that would be stage four, stage five, stage six, seven, eight, nine. That's going to cover a lot of territory. And of course, what occurs along that trajectory, and obviously there are spikes, there are bumps, there are a lot of nyam or anomalous experiences that will crop up. They can be quite challenging. But overall, that movement from stage four right on through stage nine, that's a movement of less and less and less effort needing to be exerted. And it's a really good investment. Because as you're needing to invest less and less and less effort, you're getting more and more and more on your returns. Yeah, exactly. You're overcoming coarse excitation, medium excitation, subtle excitation, and likewise for laxity, but with less and less effort. So that sounds like a really good company that you're needing to put less and less effort in, and yet it's producing more and more and more. Very good company. Let's invest in that one. So there we are. We'll stop there in terms of the four types of mindfulness. Maybe the next cycle we'll come back to the, the final two. Having said that, though, now the practice that we'll do this afternoon, we'll start with the warm-up, the warm-up, which is not settling the mind in its natural state, but it's a good facsimile, and it's an easier facsimile, as we so often go from coarse to subtle. So where we'll start, I'll be very brief here, because we'll have the guided meditation, and you're familiar with it already. After settling body, speech, and mind, then what we'll do is take the space of the body and whatever tactile events, somatic events, earth, water, fire, air, whatever arises within that space, and we'll seek to maintain that quality of awareness. This is extremely valuable, very, very valuable, to develop the ability to cultivate the mode of awareness where you're able to, uh, to, to attend to not only the sensations, and recall the, com the comments I made yesterday, the sensations that rise up to meet you, remember I gave the color of hair, col hair color and sounds and so forth, so that rise up to meet you. Well, there we have the sensations that rise up to meet us, sensations of solidity and firmness, sensations of moisture, sensations of heat and cold, sensations of movement, earth, water, fire, air. They rise up to meet us, right? They are. But now in addition to that, within this field of the body, what else do you experience from yesterday? Feelings. Feelings. And they don't rise up objectively to meet us in that way. But more else, we'll go down, right back to the exa example from yesterday. Um, Marie's, Maria's hair color is just the hair color that it is. It's not, it's just copper colored. That's the name for it. It's just copper colored hair, but that's all it is. But I may attend to it and say, oh, what beautiful hair. I may feel 
really kind of a happy, oh, so beautiful hair, so pleasure arising. And then, of course, because I'm experiencing pleasure, I'll say, she has beautiful hair. Whereas if I've had really bad experience with redhead in the, in the past, I say, oh, redheaded people, oh, dangerous, hot-tempered, fiery, unpredictable, volatile. Oh, those people scare me. So red hair. I just see the red hair, and that's enough. That oh, anxiety comes in. Right? Well, the anxiety as well as, oh, what beautiful hair, the pleasure arising, of course, are not in the nature of the sensations of copper color arising to my eyes. Right? It's in the way I'm experiencing it. Well, likewise in the body. It's not so obvious there. But likewise in the body. It's so easy to view, habitually we do view, the sensations arising themselves as if the pleasure, the pain, the indifference is built in. It's, it's hardwired. This sensation is just painful, period. Like the pain is in it. Not necessarily. The Buddha's view is, of course it appears that way, there's no question. But the Buddha's view is that this is the way of experiencing that sensation. It's not in the nature of the sensation any more than pleasure is in the nature of that color, of the hair color. Right? So to be able to experience, to bring this quality of mindfulness that's so light, that's so non-grasping, that doesn't reach out the tentacles of identification, of mine, any more than I look at Maria's hair and say, that's my copper color. Well, that's silly and everybody knows that. But then I experience sensations in the body and what, I, what do I feel? Oh, those are, these are my sensations, my sensations. Strong identification is called the closely held aggregates, the skandhas, the closely held skandhas. It's my body and the, my sensations in my body and my feelings and my thoughts and my states of consciousness. That's much tighter than my cell phone or my eyeglass case. Yeah, yeah, but I can give that away. Not so easy to give an, a, a hand away, right? And so what we're attending, seeking to cultivate here, quality of mindfulness, that attends not only to the sensations arising kind of objectively, but also to the feelings that are the manner in which we experience these sensations and attend to both of them to the best of our ability without distraction, without grasping. So we have there the kind of the preliminary ground where the, the sensations are not difficult to find. We know exactly where to look. The space of the body is very easy to identify. It's, it starts here, it ends there, more or less. And so getting accustomed there, then we shift it right over to the mind, bringing that same quality. And now once again, we're attending to events that rise up to meet us, for example, thoughts and images, but also, what else? Emotions, desires, the way we experience our thoughts, the way we experience our memories, and so forth. And that's in the subjective mode of experiencing what's arising to the mind. Now, what I was, as I was reflecting upon this just before coming here, it struck me that when we're just sitting quietly and the, thought, the mind goes into its old addictive habit of rumination, and we start feeling some anger, some resentment coming up. Check closely. I'll bet you if, if anger, ill will, resentment, hostility is arising, most likely, if you're really caught up in rumination, let's say the anger is not directed at your thought or the image. It's directed at the referent. I'm so angry at this person. I'm angry at that situation. I'm angry at, at this. I'm angry at that. But the mind is launched off to something we presume to be in the real world. And then the anger is there. And the image, the memory, is just the vehicle by which we attend to and then get angry about. 
the referent, which is something out there in the world. And likewise, if some very strong desire starts to arise, it's not desire for the image. It's a desire for the person, the object, the place, the occupation, whatever it is. The attention is launched off, and then, then the desire, the craving, the attachment arises. But it's not just for the images right hap happening here and now. So what we're seeking to do as we settle the mind in its natural state, as the Buddha so clearly said, in the mentally perceived, let there be just the mentally perceived. See, the images as images, the thoughts as thoughts, without being catapulted off to the reference of the thought, which then is bound to foster craving, hostility, envy, a whole host of mental afflictions. Whereas if you stay right there, as if you were in a lucid dream, and you're attending to mental events as mental events, you see, this is a private showing. Everything that's arising here consists 100% of the creations of my own mind. Just exactly as if you were having a lucid dream. And everything there, it's a private show. It's a home show. It's your own personal private studio, your home theater. But you're not seeing outside of the theater. You're seeing the images in your theater, in the space of your mind. And therefore, it's a very different show than thinking that you're looking out into the world and seeing what's really out there. And so you're seeing your thoughts, your emotions, but not only that which arises to you, but attending also in this practice, and it's crucially important, attending also to the emotions that arise, the desires that arise, and not getting totally absorbed in them, get, getting caught in their grip, but being aware this emotion, that desire, and having some looseness around it, to remind you of this point of very, very important convergence between modern affective psychology and Buddhism, one that uh, Paul Ekman and I frankly have really reveled in, is when he, as a psychologist, who's not a Buddhist, not a religious person, very fine person, very ethical person, but not a religious person as such, he, he makes this comment about the refractory period. And that's, that's a psychological term, and I find it very, very useful, so I'm going to spend a couple of minutes, not many. But the refractory period is exactly when we get caught in the grip of an emotion. It could be fear, anger. It could be in the, the emotions that go along with infatuation, and so forth. But we get totally absorbed in it, like it sucked us up and we're inside the emotion. And we're looking from being totally immersed in or caught in the grip of some emotion. And we're looking out at the world through the lens of that emotion, emotional possession. And what we see is, Reality only as it's filtered through that lens. So if I'm angry at Jack, and I say Jack as in Jack and Jill, no Jack in mind. But if I'm angry at Jack and I get caught in the a refractory period, caught up in anger, resentment towards Jack, all I can see as long as I'm in that refractory period, all I can perceive of Jack is the negative. It, the refractory period filters out everything else. If Jack is a loving father, a very fine spouse, most of the time he's a very decent guy, occasion, on occasion he screws up, I only focus on the way he screwed up. And even his face looks negative. His voice sounds negative. Because the lens is, I will only see of Jack that which corresponds to the emotion that's captured me. And likewise, in the emotion of infatuation with a great deal of attachment and so forth, euphoria, oh, you know, it could be sexual, it could be all kinds of things. It could be for money, who knows what. Well, if only I had that house, I would be so happy. A house like that, wow. That would make me, oh, you know, gosh, a house like that, that would just be 
that would just be the perfect house. And then you can't see any fault in the house. You'll see only how happy you'd be, and it seems to be a veritable source of happiness. Anybody living in that house, they must be happy, and I want to be the one who is, because that'll be a happy place, happy place. And so then it filters out everything that does not accord with that infatuation, right? Now, I'm going to stop. Here's the key point. We get it from Shantideva. We get it from the really sharp, incisive wisdom of modern affective psychology. And that is emotions are bound to arise. And they do color. They color our way of perceiving. They just do. That's the nature of emotions, right? especially when they slip into moods. They color, and, t- and the refractory period easily comes in, especially when craving or hostility comes up. And the value of this practice is that by developing it and cultivating it very quickly, when an emotion comes up and gets you in its grip, you recognize. It's almost like pronouncement within your own mind. Aha, I see that my mind has been, is, is right now dominated by anger. Aha, I see right now a lot of fear is arising, and I see no basis in reality for it. Ah, I see, now I'm getting a, a very selfish, self-absorbed kind of haughtiness has arised. Ah, I see, I see. And so in seeing that, whatever the mental affliction can be, might be, in seeing it, you've already given yourself an out. You've already seen the escape route. You're not totally insane. Right? Because you see, aha, there it is. And you're seeing it not from inside of it. You're recognizing, ah, very strong rage has arisen. Resentment has arisen. Envy has arisen. Ah, a lot of envy is arising right now. And then Shantideva's words, which I think are enormously valuable and could save so much suffering if people would just develop this ability and then follow it, is when you see that your mind has fallen into a refractory period, when you see that your mind has been caught in the grip of some mental affliction, that's the time to not act. You can't just make it go away any more than you can just stop ruminating. You can't just make an emotion go away by breathing out. You know, not so easy. But you don't need to act. And if you're sustaining that awareness, letting your awareness hold its own ground, aha, I see now my mind is really very impassioned with anger, with craving, with hus- whatever it may be, and you hold your own ground, then you're not fueling that emotion. You're not feeding the mental affliction. You're holding its own ground, and without having to apply any outside antidote, as you're just aware of these surges of emotion coming up, maybe afflictive emotions coming up, you're aware of them as you hold your own ground, because you're not identifying with them, not grasping onto them, but just being aware of them. Then you'll watch your mind heal, and the mental affliction dissolves of its own accord. It can't sustain, be sustained all by itself. It needs grasping to be, to be perpetuated. Okay? That was a long preface, but I think the, the stakes here are very, very high. There could be so much greater well-being if we cultivate this ability here on the cushion in our own laboratory, and then in terms of taking something home with you, taking something off the cushion with you, that ability to recognize not only the thoughts and images that objectively arise, but also the subjective impulses of desires, of motions, of mental afflictions, and so forth, Recognize them as quickly as possible. Identify them. 
And then without having to be just judgmental, you, just, you recognize that mental affliction as a mental affliction. Then you're in a position to make a choice. Aha, maybe now is not the best time to act. Maybe action is needed, but not right now. I'll wait until I'm no longer in a refractory period. My mind is reestablished in equilibrium. And then from that vantage point, I'll do what needs to be done. But not right now. Right now, I'm going to quarantine myself and not do anything. I'm going to be still like a piece of wood. Shantideva's words. Okay, that's enough preface. Let's jump in. The very first thought as you venture into the practice is to set yourself at ease. Set your body at ease as you settle it in its natural state. Your respiration at ease as it settles in its natural rhythm. Your mind at ease, still and clear. As you calm the mind with mindfulness of breathing for a couple of minutes.
Then direct the full force of your mindfulness to the space of the body. And to whatever tactile events corresponding to the elements of earth, water, fire, and air that arise objectively, as well as the feelings, feelings of discomfort, neutral feelings, possibly feelings of pleasure that arise within this somatic field. And whatever arises, just let it be without seeking to modify it in any way. Simply observe the nature of these objectively and subjectively appearing phenomena. To the best of your ability, observing them without preference and sustaining the mindfulness without distraction and without grasping. As usual, monitor the flow of mindfulness with introspection. And as soon as you see, retrospectively, that you've been carried away, fallen off the wagon, so to speak, relax, release, and return.
now shift the focus of attention. By a process of elimination, withdrawing your attention from all of the five sensory fields of experience, and focusing it on what's left over, the domain of purely mental experience that you do not detect with any of the five physical senses. Again, insofar as it's still helpful, you may, as a preliminary exercise, give yourself a target, a discursive thought or a mental image. Focus on it, allow it to fade, and keep your attention right where it was. Or if you're accustomed to the practice now, simply focus on the domain of the mind. And observe the discursive thoughts and images that arise more objectively within this domain that rise up to meet you. also and ever so importantly, attend to the subjective impulses that arise, the emotions and desires, whatever arises within this domain of experience. Let your awareness hold its own ground. Remain in stillness in its own place. as you quietly and non-reactively observe the nature of whatever arises in this domain without preference and sustaining the flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. Eyes be at least partially open, your gaze vacant. Distinguish here and now between movement and stillness in the space of the mind and movement and stillness of your own awareness.
experience here and now, the first level of mindfulness, of retention, of ongoing flow of recollection, of your awareness holding its own ground in stillness while simultaneously experiencing the comings and goings of the mind. Experiment with breathing through your nostrils, as usual, or breathing through your mouth. You'll very likely find that the breathing through the mouth entails much less restriction on the flow of the breath. So experiment and see what lends to your body a greater sense of ease and looseness an ease of breathing so that it is not forced or inhibited in any way, free flow of the breath, and a sense of ease, of looseness, of spaciousness, of your own awareness, which makes it less and less prone to be carried away by distracting thoughts and other stimuli.
It's important not only that your awareness holds its own ground, sustains its stillness, but also that while your awareness is resting in its own place, you are introspectively aware that your awareness is holding its own place. And therein you find your confidence of holding your own ground as you face into into the wind of thoughts, of images, of emotions and desires. Attentive, but unmoved and non-reactive. I mentioned yesterday morning that as we cultivate compassion or any of the four measurables, but focusing for the time being on compassion, and we're cultivating this while sitting on a meditation cushion quite disengaged physically from other people, sitting in solitude, that the practical value in daily life of spending time cultivating compassion is when we step off the cushion and we engage with others, we attend to the world around us, that we're poised to respond compassionately when we see those in distress, those especially perpetuating their own suffering. There's a very practical outflow that is utterly benevolent, utterly good, universally good. So what might be the practical outflow of this kind of practice as we cultivate it, develop it, get familiar with it, get familiar with it? Well, one is the obvious. I've already mentioned it, so very briefly. As we're engaging with the world and we are caught up in a refractory period, we recognize it really quickly and then don't just give knee-jerk reactions coming out of a refractory period. Right? So we see it, we say, ah, now time to be silent. Okay, it's passed, now I can talk again. Obviously, we're not going to give a whole narrative, but there, we're just right there, we can save ourselves and others so much grief. And there's the practical outcome, let alone achieving jamata, 
the very day you practice it and you step off the cushion, you probably have a little enhanced ability to recognize when your mind is agitated, when it's lax, recognizing the thoughts that are coming up, the memories, the moods and emotions, the mental afflictions that are arising, so you can start making wise choices on whether you want to act out of them or let them be, let them pass like a, like a rain squall, like dark clouds that are showering you. But you can see, oh, this can be over in just a couple of minutes. Just hang in there. It'll pass. And then, OK, all clear. You carry on. So there's one obvious benefit already mentioned, but now another one. And that is when we're just in the haze of rumination, kind of present, kind of not. The Peanuts character, Pigpen, seeing reality through the veil of this little dust cloud, this little globe of dust cloud that follows us around, of our thoughts, ruminations, caught up in I, me, mine thoughts. When we engage with other people, the situations around us, from within that perspective of just the blah, blah, blah perspective, the rumination perspective, by and large, our responses to whatever comes up are going to be massively habitual. Very much like, oh, the parallel is staggeringly close, frighteningly close. Very much like a non-lucid dream. When you're midst of a, in the midst of a dream, you don't know you're dreaming, and something comes up, something attractive, some unattractive, pleasant, unpleasant. What are you going to do? You're going to act out of habit. That's what you're going to do. Because you're, you're quasi-conscious, and of course, you don't get it. You don't understand the nature of reality you're experiencing. So your responses are probably going to be just like an automaton, so habitual. And most of it's unpleasant. But now coming back to the waking state, not only not reacting in this knee-jerk or pure, purely habitual way, coming straight out of rumination, which is the thorough conditioning of the mind, out of habit, but if we bring this quality of awareness, very present, loose, very attentive, but without grasping, as we attend to other people, situations, places, activities, and so forth. But bring that loose, spacious, but very attentive quality of awareness, of, of my favorite word, attentiveness, attending to, to whatever situation arises. And we're doing so without distracting, without grasping. In that looseness, will the outflow be that we just don't act? Because here we are, just resting in the space of awareness, right? Just resting in space of awareness. Does that mean that we venture out into the world and we see injustice, we see people harmed, we see people in need, and we'll just say, ah, ah, ah. Just let it be, let it be. I'm happy. If you're not, you should meditate too. Then you'll be happy like me. <laughs> no, that's pretty, pretty sappy. Uh, my strong sense here, very strong sense, is if you're maintaining that quality of awareness and events arise, since you're not caught up in the cloud of rumination, the I, me, mine, utterly self-centered rumination, it pretty much always is, but coming from this more spacious place of awareness that's so engaged, so attentive, that what comes out will not be simply a reaction. So let's just parse the terms a little bit. Instead of simply being reactive, like somebody says, Alan, you're such a jerk. And reactive would be, no, you're a bigger jerk. And then I should poke up my tongue, right? Like that. So you know, going back to infancy, but going back to old stale habits, that would be, let's say, reactivity. 
Somebody shows anger to me, I show anger right back. Somebody, etc., etc. Okay, we know about that. But now, if you're right there in the moment, and somebody, somebody you know, rubs you the wrong way, behaves in a way that's disagreeable, or maybe very unwholesome, very harmful, instead of the sheer reactivity, like, what a jerk, and so forth and so on, all the judgments that just naturally flow out habitually, right there, because you're not in that mode, what comes out may be fresh, unprecedented, and spontaneous, coming from a deeper place. And so, to parse the terms a little bit, instead of being reactive, you're responsive. I'm just going to define responsive as coming from a more spacious place that's not in the grip of any refractory period, emotion, mental affliction, not caught up in rumination, that's present, spacious, clear, open heart, clear mind, and what comes up may be spontaneous, unexpected, unpremeditated, and spot on. So check, check. I think it's probably true. And I've experienced this among, because I've had the great good fortune to know so many yogis over the years, that kind of spontaneity. Quite remarkable. I mean, my root guru comes to mind so vividly. It's only Dalai Lama. When, he's, when qu people, questions are posed to him, or he's, he encounters different kind of situations, as I observe how he responds. Boy, he doesn't react. But there's that freshness there. And it kind of also, in so many occasions, not every single one, but so often kind of a joyousness that's right there, but a freshness, a lightness, and a spontaneity that one wonders whether he's even surprising himself by what comes out, you know, but so often spot on, spot on. So there we are. Maybe it's something like that. Great adventure, great adventure. Oh, let's read one, and then I'm going to go to the left today. We still have some time left. Oh, yeah. Joe, process of elimination. <laughs> the only one I've not had an interview with yet, but I will very soon. Excellent. Joe. So, Joe, did you introduce yourself at the beginning? Uh, I did, yes. Okay, very good. Okay, we'll get to know you better, but we're going to get to know you since this is signed. We know who this is coming from. In the attention revolution, the stress of shamatha... The stages, sorry. The stages of shamatha are presented as a progression such that one step is mastered before the next is embarked upon. In this retreat, we are kindly invited to sample from the whole menu, the, the range of, of shamatha practices. In our private practice, what degree of, a, of achievement of a state, of a stage of shamatha should we aim for before moving on to a subsequent stage as the main focus of our practice? I'm so glad you asked it, because I would say, don't do it at all. Yeah, it's very good. It's a very, it's a very reasonable question. And it's absolutely the question that I was posing when I went into my first long shamatha retreat. Oh, is it really true? Yeah, 32 years ago. Um, is the notion of these stages as being, okay, what degree of achievement should I have before I should aim for? Okay, how stabilized do I need to be in stage one before I can... Okay, achieve this one, and now let's, let's launch and go to stage two, okay? And now I've mastered it, conquered it, like, you know, like the Anglo-Americans going across the West. We conquered this tribe, now we got this land. Okay, there's the next tribe. Conquer them then, and, you know, and then we'll make our way to the West. Um, not at all. So don't aim for any stage, okay? It's a very good question. 
and it's so clearly articulated that then we can put it aside. And that is, don't aim for any stage at all. Okay? And that is any more than if you were going on a vacation. And my family did this when I was a kid. We went on a long, it must have been a month, went on a driving vacation, a big 1960s station wagon. We great big, big loop, big loop up to Canada and around, and then came back home. Okay? And it was just an act of benevolence on my parents' part. This was just something really great for the kids, and we all enjoyed it. And on the whole, we did. But you can imagine if you had this big loop where, you, of course, you're going to come back to where you started from. And, it, and you had your first one. OK, kids, the first one is going to be about 350 miles away, and this is going to be where we'll stay tonight. And, and when we get there, you know, we'll have a meal, and then it's to bed. Imagine the kids saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are, when do we get there? How, long, how much longer? How much longer? Are we there yet? We didn't have we didn't have text messaging back then, but you know, how long is it going to be? Are we there? Oh, we finally made it to the hotel. Oh, good, we made it. Stage one. Whew, thank goodness that's finished. Good, now I can go to sleep. Tomorrow, how far do we have to go? Because now we've achieved the first launching pad. Stage two. How many miles do we have to get through? Because I am just looking forward to that next motel, and the next bed. Very silly way to have vacation. This practice is to be enjoyed. You know, if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to go very far. And so they're just benchmarks. They're just benchmarks. And so more like, and moreover, it's not strictly linear. Okay? So as we're proceeding along, stage one, okay, you've engaged. But then how long will it be before you can say, okay, I think I pretty well stabilized in stage two. So now, even though in a Given session, 24 minutes, 30, 35 minutes, something on that, in that range. Oh, most of the time you're off. But you're on, and on occasion you can sustain without course excitation an ongoing flow of mindfulness without completely losing it for up to about a minute or so. And then you lose it. But then you come back, and then you lose it, you come back. But you do have those instances of you know, really being on. Well, when most of your sessions are there, and occasionally you slip back. You have indigestion, you get ill, something happens, you, you are in email contact with somebody and it disturbs the mind, and maybe for a very good reason. Just stuff happens. Then you'll probably black, backslide a bit. You say, okay, I was in stage two, but I've just slipped back. And maybe it's stage one for a couple of days. But then, okay, now I'm back to normal. This is how I normally am. And then while you're normally there, you'll have these little forays into stage three, or maybe even a little whiff, a little fragrance of stage four, and then you fall back to stage two. And so it's, uh, is it jitterbug? I don't know, where you kind of, kind of going backward, forward, backward, forward, but you're going more forwards than you are backwards, especially if in, a, in a shamatha retreat. And so in that way, you move along. But you don't give yourself targets to aim for. What you are, and this is so important, so I'm glad you asked the question as you did, so that you'll never ask that question again. Okay? That when you're in the practice, you're not aiming for anything. When you're in the practice, you're just doing the practice. Okay? So I, I thought, I thought, in this Tanyapura Mind Center, is today April 24th? I think it is. April 24th? Yeah. On this day, April 24th, 2012, at the Tanyapura Mind Center, we can establish a new organization. And it's called Ruminators Anonymous. <laughs> and the way you join it is you come to one of the meetings. We're holding them two times a day, as you might have noticed. And you come to the meetings and you say, hello, everybody. My name's Alan, and I, I'm a ruminator. 
but I haven't had a rumination for 15 seconds. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> okay, I'm Alan, and I haven't had a rumination for three seconds. <laughs> it really is so simple, and I, and I hope you know I'm absolutely not making anything light of the Alcoholics Anonymous, which is an extraordinary organization and helps so many, many people. But this is a little bit like it, right? Because what else do we call this? An addiction that really is harmful? And as Shantideva says, to put it in modern English, when you are caught up in rumination, you are living between the fangs of mental afflictions. You are so ready to be mowed down, to be caught in a refractory period and, and wind up in one regrettable episode after another, which happens when one becomes an alcoholic, a practicing alcoholic. You know, you're caught up in it, and then you wind up in one regrettable incident after another. No joking matter. And neither is rumination. I mean, it's fun to say, you know, Ruminator's Anonymous. I don't really think it's going to catch on because, of course, the whole world would have to belong. Um, but there we are. So this is from moment to moment. Just right now, I'm on the wagon. Right now, I am practicing. Right now. And likewise, so that's for the nine stages. And then retrospectively, when you come out of the session and then you, you review it, then you recognize, ah, in that session, yeah, now that I recall how it went, now that I'm outside, I sense, yeah, I was mostly on the target that time. I think that was an experience of stage three. Stage three, you know? And so even for this second mode of mindfulness, manifest mindfulness, what's its quality? That you are sustaining that flow of mindfulness that is still while attending to the activities of the mind, and it's not strenuous. Now we can say, oh, how long will that take? How, that, that's my target. How long will that take before I can just let my awareness rest in its own ground and without effort, without being strenuous, without having to really overexert myself, be able to hold my own ground and simultaneously be aware of thoughts, images, and so forth arising? Oh, how about right now? Yeah, that was pretty effortless. That was it. So we taste it right now. In five seconds, you can taste manifest mindfulness, right? So you get a taste of it, and then you just get more and more and more taste of it. Okay? Good. So go for it, Meek. Meek's on the left-hand side. What can I do? Um, it's just about the preface. In the part about manifest mindfulness, you were I, I couldn't hear. In the part about manifest mindfulness. Manifest mindfulness, yes. You said uh, that. Uh, you're on it or you have achieved it when you can sustain it for a considerable period Didn't of time. Say considerable, no. What is, what is the considerable period? It's of not time? considerable. I, if I said that, and I may have because I don't have an eidetic memory, I don't say that. I, I, I retract it. If I said it, I retract it. it is in, so here's what we, I suggest we don't want to do. And I may be correcting myself here if I chose those words. It's not so much for a sustained period of time, but right now. That's the nature of this practice, settling the mind is naturally. Right now, that's why I gave that five-second exercise a minute or two ago. Right now, can you unstrenuously, unstrenuously, without exerting much effort, I'm not saying no effort, but with not having the feeling that it's strenuous, right now, can you let your awareness hold its own ground and be aware simultaneously of the stillness of your own awareness with the movements of the mind? Right now, let's try it.
where you feel your body just melting, so relaxed, so soft, your awareness so spacious and so free of grasping, that it doesn't take a lot of effort just to stay home. And then the flickering images and thoughts are coming up, but you're still home. You can experience right then. So that's manifest mindfulness. So we won't worry about how long is sustained period. That was it. If that was for five seconds, that was five seconds of manifest mindfulness. Okay? So that's the spirit of it. So I speak to both Joe and to, to Meek. That's the spirit of it. Right now, and let's come back to this lovely phrase from Tibetan to English, right now, and we don't need the commentary, but we can implicitly know it, right now, I'm achieving shamatha. This is it. This is how people have achieved shamatha for 2,500 years and longer. They're doing what I'm doing right now. And I'm achieving shamatha. So there's no target, nothing to aim at. I'm achieving it right now. This is it. Right? Good, good. Okay, one more. Oops, I've already put away my glasses, but one more to read, and then we'll come to the right-hand side of the room. Oh, yeah. This one's anonymous. So, conventional... Oh, this is from Anna. Anna. There you are, way yonder. Yes, thank you, Anna. Hola, so. So conventional reality, corresponding to dream, Tanyapura retreat, a kind of dream, an aspirational dream, me trying to meditate. So those are three bullet items. Suddenly my consciousness is going down a lift or an elevator. Elevator, like lift, yeah. So like a dream. Remembering being in a lift, sign of lucid dreaming, Three dreams, one, si one inside another. Is it relevant to notice details like the above? Sure, why not? Yeah. When we're settling the mind in its natural state, within that domain of experience, we seek to notice whatever comes up. Outside of that domain of experience, we withdraw our attention. So we're, how do you say, very pointedly curious, very pointedly interested, which means we're not, for the time being, we're not interested in an awful lot. What's going on in all of the five physical senses? What's going on in the world right now? Right now, with the world's permission, we're not attending to what's going on in the world around us. So that as we go into the retreat of, of shamatha, we achieve greater stability, greater sanity, greater mental balance, so that when we come out, then we'll, be able, we'll come out bearing gifts that we didn't have when we were going in. Okay? Well, we can hope, but we can also aspire. I mean, I can hope that it, 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 that it doesn't rain tomorrow, but I can't aspire for that. I mean, why bother? I have no control over it whatsoever. So it's more of an aspiration, an intention, that this is why we're here, not just to have a nice time, or a really weird time for eight weeks. <laughs> but we're doing something really meaningful here, that wherever we're going from, a, from, a, from going from here to a one and a half year solitary retreat, or coming from, going from here to back with a family, job, and so forth, that we come bearing gifts. If we're going into solitary retreat, we come bearing gifts for ourselves with the anticipation that when coming out of a longer solitary retreat, we'll come out with bigger gifts. That's where the bodhicitta really comes in from the beginning. Very good, very good. I just checked out the name of the 
This is really quite short chit-chat, and then I'll get to the right, but very, it will be very short. After Thomas Jefferson bought this vast tract of land in the middle part of North America for $15 million, or nowadays $233 million, 47 cents, a sh 40, 40, 47 cents an acre. I think it was a good deal. You know. But this whole midsection of, of North America, then after Thomas Jefferson had bought it, of course, he didn't know what he bought. It was kind of like, whatever's there, I wanted. Because we wanted to go west. Um, then he sent out an expedition that was called the Lewis and Clark Expedition. It was the first time the United States had ever sent an expedition from the eastern or central part of the country all the way to the Pacific coast. First one, these two guys with a party of about 33. And, but, but why I mention it, just because it's cool, and then I'm going to drop it. But what was the name of the expedition? They didn't call it the Lewis and Clark Expedition. That wasn't their name. They call it the Core of Discovery Expedition. The core of discovery. Now, I love it to be C-O-R-E, but of course it was C-O-R-P-S. But the core of discovery expedition, that's what they called it. To go out there and to discover the natural resources of all of that vast body of land from the, the Mississippi River all the way to the Pacific Ocean, um, and to see whether there was any kind of a water passage that would take you all the way so they were already looking at, at uh, business with Asia and hoping there would be some water passage. So the metaphor is kind of cool. That's all. I finished with that. Over to the right. Anything on this side? Observations? Yes. We'll go back to Lloyd. Right right there, indeed. Um, hey. Um, before the meditation, you said uh, something like the feelings are not one with the sensations. They're not identical to the sensations, correct. Okay. Uh, so I was wondering how do we get to define our feelings in the sense of... I, I just missed your verb. How do we get to? Define our feelings. Define our feelings, yes. Uh, in the sense that um, if we get like um, a feeling like of a... We feel like scratching it, if we're like feeling yeah. itchy or something. An itchy sensation, sure. Well, how can we come to the, define that as an unpleasant feeling and actually wanting to scratch it or and, and we're not defining it as a pleasant feeling and just letting it be? Is yeah. that a, an inborn uh, thing in, in our characteristics, or does that come out of experience, out of education, out of whatever? This is innate. This is innate. That is, and, and in Buddhism, the phrase for this, which is really core, and that will relate to tomorrow morning's meditation, in Tibetan it's Zakje Nyeolalembe, Pumbo. And the meaning of this is that our skandhas, or let's just say the body-mind, our body-mind, that they are closely held, closely held. And that is the sensations arising within this domain, within, on my skin and inside my skin. The sensations arising there. And of course, thoughts, images, emotions, everything that happens in my mind, closely held. We didn't learn this from our parents. We can't blame it on anybody else. We're born with this. It's, it's, we're born with this. It is an identification, a grasping onto eye and mind at the very least, it goes out to the skin, everything inside the skin and within the mind. But this grasping onto it is, this is mine. This is mine, right? And then we can extend, okay, my family, my iPhone. And the more that grasping extends out, then the more vulnerable we are to suffering with respect to everything we're grasping onto, right? So a lot could be said about that. I'm not going to follow it right now. But here we are with the body and mind. And so there it is. It's a given that we identify with the sensations. Now, 
I'm translating from Tibetan into English, which means it's going to be more precise than just ordinary vernacular English. Because we can say, oh, well, these are feelings arising in the, mind, in the body. These are sensations. Sensations, feelings are the same. Well, OK, not as I'm using the terms. When I refer to the, the sensations, and that is the tactile events, there's a nice neutral term, of earth, water, fire, air. Earth is just solidity and firmness. So when I say there's a sensation of firmness and solidity arising in the body, that tells you nothing about whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Just firmness. I've just touched my head. It's firm. That doesn't say it's going to be pleasant or unpleasant. It's, just, it's, it's firm. That's earth element. right? And then when I feel, I feel the moisture on my tongue, that's water element. Well, that's not pleasant or unpleasant. It's moisture on my tongue. Well, so whatever. But there's nothing in it that has a feeling connotation. And then I feel my cheek. And I say, oh, that's warm. OK, that's fire element. It's just warm. And then, and then I, I can feel the sensations of my hands moving, or my breath, the sensations of movement of the breath in the body. And they're just sensations. That's the air element. So the point is that in these elements themselves, and bear in mind, this is a phenomenological view, an experiential view of the elements that constitute our physical world, earth, water, fire, air, outside, inside. This is very much in the Indian tradition as well, Indian Ayurvedic medicine, Tibetan medicine, Buddhism. And that is experiential. That is, we're not making any comments about the nature of the physical world independent of experience, but rather how is the world experienced physically within the domain of experience. So when I say sensation, I'm referring to the sensations of earth, water, fire, air that arise, rise up to meet us. And that includes tingling sensations that we will call, that's a sensation of itching. And this one is feel, etc. Right. But now conjoined with those sensations, which I'm saying, as I'm using the term, that rise up to meet us, then there's the way we experience them. So if there is a kind of a sensation on your cheek that we would call itching, and if you feel the impulse to move your hand and scratch it, that's a clear indication that your way of experiencing that sensation on your cheek was unpleasant, a feeling, feeling you were experiencing it unpleasantly, and you don't like to experience things unpleasantly. Therefore, you want it to go away. Therefore, a desire arises. The desire gives rise to an intention. Lo and behold, your hand's moving up, and it's doing the doing the work. It's scratching. And then you say, ah, good, that itching sensation. OK, it's finished. It's gone. I can stop scratching now. And now it's not there anymore, right? That's because that sensation was experienced as unpleasant. Now, is this, is this hardwired? Is this hardwired? That is, no matter what, do some sensations just have to be experienced as unpleasant? Obviously, some can go either way being caressed by a loved one, being caressed by a stranger in the subway. Same tactile sensation, very different experience. But then being hit with somebody with a nail gun and having a nail go into you. Not a whole lot of give on that one. You know, even on your best days, like, oh. <laughs> good day to be hit with a nail gun. <laughs> not, not, not very likely. So some of them is going to be pretty built in. Or I've heard kidney stones. If you get kidney stones, my father had kidney stones. He said, boy, that's, when you have kidney stones, that's a very memorable event. Apparently, the pain is, the pain is pretty intense. It's not like kind of like, how do I want to interpret this? It's like, how do you want to interpret that? You know? So pretty intense. So that kind of looks like, well, this look, looks like kind of hardwired. Looks like the, although the sensation may be just earth, water, fire, air, nevertheless, some of these seem to become very loaded 
inviting or demanding, you will experience this in an unpleasant way. People are professional torturers. They will influence your body in ways that are very confident. I'm about to touch you in a certain way. I'm very confident. You're going to find it very unpleasant. And they do that because it's called torture. Right? So is there any escape there, or are we simply stuck? And the answer is the escape is not easy, but there is, there is escape. But that means you're going to have to go, you're going to have to plow very deeply. You're going to have to go way down into the root system to withdraw the tentacles of identification, my sensations. Not easy, but possible. So it said for an arhat, for an arhat, now one who's no more, no more self-grasping, no more grasping onto I and mine. It's eradicated, cut from the root. An arhat, a liberated being. Does this person have general anesthesia for the whole body now that free of, you know, free of the roots of suffering? No, of course not. You'd be disabled. You'd be weird if you couldn't experience it. You put your hand over fire and you don't feel it's painful. That would just be weird. And, and as I mentioned before very briefly, that's a very, very serious, extremely rare disease that can be catastrophic. So no, the arhat has not achieved a catastrophic illness by having relinquished this, closely, this, this relationship of being closely holding the aggregates. Pain arises. Pain arises as it should. Because pain is a signal. Don't keep your hand over the fire. Don't keep your hand. This is, the, this is the pain. Say, pull it back. Pull it back now. Good, good messenger. Thank you, messenger. And maybe I didn't know there was fire there. And now I won't come out with a singed hand. I'll get the pain really quickly. Pull my hand. Oh, good. No harm. If I hadn't had the pain, I could leave it there and come out with a stump. That could be very problematic. But how does the arhat experience pain? Not in the same way that we do. Because the grasping onto the body is not there, and the grasping onto feelings is not there. The grasping onto all of the five skandhas, the body and feelings, the identification with my feelings, as if there's something in the very nature of the feelings that makes them mine, that's gone. So the feelings are arising more in space. You recognize them. You're perfectly aware of them. And you know that if they need a response, there's a response. You pull your hand out of the fire. But they don't get you in the grip. But that's a long shot. So this is, sounds very, very hypothetical. And that's, that's kind of a long way away. But now let's bring it closer to home and, re and immediately relevant to the practice here. This is enormously important. Okay? So this business about the arhats, OK, that's Buddhist deal. Don't have to believe it, but I just told you the Buddhist truth. Um, but believe it or not, that's your business. But now let's come back to our experience, because frankly, we don't have a lot of choice. Somebody shoots you with a, with a nail gun, it's going to hurt, period. But even then, might you, even with physical pain, might you experience the physical pain with a more spacious mind? And I read not long ago that in some cases, in some cases, for people adept at mindfulness of breathing, when they apply mindfulness of breathing to some physical distress, it can be as good as an anesthetic. It was a scientific study. It was not a, a Buddha study. It was a scientific study. So already there, that suggests that if you're maintaining a flow of mindfulness, it's loose, it's not grasping. Even right now, in the very near future, as you develop this ability, the way you experience pain could be not so searing, not so gripping, because your awareness isn't. But let's now focus right in on the practice of this afternoon. Unpleasant memories. I think probably everybody here has been alive long enough 
They have some memories of very unpleasant events, experiences. Right? And normally when we recall those memories, we feel unhappy, distressed. That's why we call them unpleasant memories. Right? And why? Because the memory arises with the images and so forth, the connotations, the associations around it. We're caught up in it, get caught up in rumination. The attention goes off to the referent of the memory, back in time, to those people and that situation, and he did this and she did that. And so in a way, we are now reliving the experience. And I've heard, and I think it's true, that neurophysiologically, in terms of the neural correlates, I'm choosing my words very carefully, that if we go back and relive some unpleasant memory of being treated very badly, and the, we're not simply attending to the images arising right now. No, the images arose and poof, our attention is catapulted back to the past, back to those people, what they said, how I felt, and so forth and so on. Neurophysiologically, we're getting that experience all over again. Now you've had it twice. So the impact on the brain, and I have it three times, and I have it four times, and a hundred times. You're just hammering nails into your head. Neurophysiologically, the patterns, the synapses, the pathways there. You're really getting brutalized. But the people out there brutalize you only once. And then if you relive, relive it 50 times, you're responsible for the 50 times. And the people who started it, they're responsible for one. So then why are you beating yourself up? So is there a possibility here, like today, that images of some memory, some unpleasant memory come up? But instead of getting caught up in it with the cognitive fusion, here and now, images of memory come up. Images come up. Discursive thoughts come up. The words that were said come up. And you hold your own ground. You don't attend to the referent. You don't go back into the past. You remain right where you are in the present moment. The images come up. And this malicious activity here and that very harmful, belligerent, mean-spirit activity there and the words that were spoken and they're coming up, and they're coming up. And you're not moved, and you're not caught. You're lucid. You're lucid as if in a lucid dream. And somebody, now imagine this. Imagine you're really lucid in a dream. And somebody comes to you in the dream while you're just radiantly lucid and says, Lloyd, you're a terrible person. You're a terrible person. And I'm just giving it light, but you know, really launches into you, right? And you're lucid. How distressed? Not as some goal, not as some aim in the future, here and now. That's big. That's quite big. Okay. Very good. Very good. Okay. Nope. It's dinner time. So I'll see you tomorrow morning. Enjoy your evening. <laughs>